Welcome back to The Technology Pill, a podcast that looks at how technology is reshaping our lives every day and exploring the different ways that governments and companies use tech to increase their power. My name is Gus Hossein, and I'm the Executive Director at Privacy International. And I'm here with my colleague, Caitlin Bishop, as ever. So Caitlin had the idea for um, this podcast for us to speak to Dr. Courtney Thompson about the issues that she looks at, which is phrenology and physiognomy. And and so, Caitlin, I, I thought first, um, before we introduce Dr. Thompson, what was it that made you interested about this? So we've done a couple of podcasts uh, looking at kind of things like facial recognition and a big part of the work and the things that I'm doing at the moment, um, look at facial recognition. And one of the things that keeps coming up in the field of facial recognition are these weird research projects. So you get occasionally like random news stories about a research project that thinks that it can detect who's gay or who's not gay on the basis of their face, which has always seemed profoundly dangerous and like a, like a dubious thing to decide to set out to do. There's such an interesting line to be drawn from earlier forms of kind of science and histories of science and the relationship between science and the police that I kind of wanted to learn more. So I went I went looking for someone to talk to. Um, and Courtney, Dr. Courtney Thompson, her book, uh, which is called An Organ of Murder, which is a fantastic title and it's got a really cool, it's got a really cool cover. Um, but no, she'd just written a book on phrenology and um, I got chatting with her and she sent over an article about the history of PhotoFit, which has a really fascinating history. And I thought that she would be an, like a really interesting person to talk to. And it would be a really interesting topic to cover because it feels like, because technology is, is new, like a lot of the technology we talk about is new, it's shiny. Um, it's Some of it's been viscerally described to me as bleeding edge, which is a phrase I've never quite kind of gotten on board with but um we talk about these bleeding edge technologies I think kind of a lot of the ways that we relate to technology and the ways that we interact with technology are old they're not new parts of ourselves I guess uh, and and I'm, I, I can't wait cool let's bring her in awesome What is physiognomy? And um, add to that, what is phrenology? Yeah. So physiognomy and phrenology are two sciences, um, two practices historically that often get confused. Physiognomy actually has a really deep history. It dates all the way back to the ancient world, to Aristotle. Um, and we can define it as the art or science of reading character from the shape of the face. And I say art or science because depending on when you are in history, it can be seen as a very scientific practice or it could be seen as more of an art. Um, in, in the ancient world, it was seen as more of a science, for example. But by the time we get to um, the 17th, 18th century, it had largely declined in status. It started to be seen as something more like uh, palmistry, like fortune telling, very much more associated with the vulgar masses, with superstition. And then in the 18th century, it actually kind of gets a bit of a bump in the 1770s and the 1780s, because this Swiss minister by the name of Johann Caspar Lavater comes along and he writes this beautiful, lavishly illustrated collection of physiognomical texts that are much more uh, much more geared towards the bourgeois, right? Um, so, so physiognomy gets a little bit of a bump in the 18th century, and that's probably part of what sets the stage for phrenology, which is our 
other science. So phrenology is uh, very similar to physiognomy in that it's also about judging character, judging the nature of the self or the mind. But I think that it's better to, to identify phrenology as more of a early science of cerebral localization, because while it did tie appearances to character, much like physiognomy, it focused instead on the shape of the skull, trying to identify what were referred to as organs or small regions in the skull that were then associated with parts of the brain and therefore associated with aspects of the mind or character. So it's uh, very different in terms of practice, both what they're looking at, physiognomy was looking at facial features, phrenologists were looking at the skull shape, and it was never really about the skull. It was about the brain and it was about the mind underneath it. Did or have police forces ever really used physiognomy and phrenology in actual investigations? Well, you know, this is this is a question I could answer in a whole bunch of ways. Uh, First of all, police forces, as we think of them, basically didn't exist until the mid 19th century. And even then they were very slow going. They emerged first. And, you know, of course, the London Metropolitan Police sort of pops up first. Based on that, you have early police forces organized in Boston and Philadelphia and New York. So cities start to develop policing forces in in Europe and the United States by around the mid 19th century. But they're slow going. They're not super successful. Um, many people don't trust them. And they, they are actually sources of their own controversies and uh, potential forms of bad behavior. So it's a very slow tradition uh, transition into what we would consider to be modern policing and modern police forces. Now, what's really interesting for, for my purposes, and in my book, I explore this in some detail, is the way that phrenology in particular was used by other aspects of crime and punishment, right? So phrenology was able in the 19th century, and especially in the United States, to gain a real foothold, for example, in the courtroom and in the prison. So leaving aside the police aspects of the the mechanisms of crime and punishment, phrenologists served as expert witnesses on the stand. Phrenological knowledge was used by judges, by lawyers. Um, Phrenologists were invited into prisons throughout the century to examine prisoners, to give reports on what they found. And they also tended to um, visit prisoners in prison, both before and after execution, to take casts of their heads. And they would actually literally sometimes take their heads home with them, their skulls for their collections. So phrenology actually, in the United States at least, had a pretty strong relationship with the the carceral state, with the prison in particular, to a certain extent with the court. And I would argue that this influence was felt in a longer way than we might expect. Now, as for policing itself, because again, the police system uh, developed a little bit later and more slowly, we do have, for example, the end of the century, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the system of Bertillonage or the Bertillon system developed by Athens Bertillon in the the latter part of the the 19th century in France. So Alphonse Bertillon was a police officer in Paris who developed a scientific approach to managing criminals and especially recidivists. So basically he wanted to develop an identification system. And what's interesting about Bertillon is both of his, his father and his brother were both scientists. They were both statisticians. So he grew up in a house where he was surrounded by science. His father was also an anthropologist. His brother also trained as a physician. So he was surrounded by science. In particular, he was surrounded by anthropology and the tools of anthropology. 
which include the calipers, which is a tool used for measuring the head. This is also a key tool in uh, phrenology. And in fact, it was a tool in phrenology before it was a tool in anthropology. There's some apocryphal stories about George Boom, who was a Scottish phrenologist teaching uh, Samuel George Morton, who was an American phrenologist, uh, American anthropologist, sorry, how to use the calipers. I don't know if that's true, but but basically it was a tool used in both of these practices. So what Bertillon does, he's, he's basically like a paper pusher in the police system in Paris, and he wants to find a better way to identify criminals, especially criminals who are recidivists, who've, who've committed crimes more than once, who are moving from place to place. And while he did work on standardizing the mugshot, and he did later work on things like fingerprinting and handwriting analysis, he developed a system referred to as anthropometry, which is measuring different parts of the head and the body, and then recording all of these measurements on a card, which would then be their identity card that would that would sort of be, be filed. Now, the Bertillon system took off in Paris, and it actually becomes very popular. By the 1890s, it had spread throughout Europe, it had spread through the United States. It had also been adopted in colonial spaces, in colonial India, for example, unsurprisingly. Um, and what's fascinating about this is we would think the mugshot would be more useful, because that was also in circulation at this time. But it was declared to be, um, and the New York Times, for example, refer to it as better than photographs. People thought that these measurements were actually more useful than photographs for identifying criminals and identifying recidivists. Now, what's interesting for me is the way Bertillon did these measurements, because what he used, again, were the calipers, and the most important measurements were those of the face and head, and in particular, a span from here to here, with it, which is, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm gesturing on my face, but if, if you put your fingers right above your ear on each side of your head, this span is the width of your head, which in practice, uh, Bertillon wrote, and I quote, in practice, the length and the width of the head are quite sufficient to identify a criminal. Now, the thing about that span, this place right here, right above your ear, if you're touching it, that is also the phrenological organ of destructiveness which would have been known as the organ of murder in the 19th century. And the span from one side to the other side of the head was used by phrenologists to judge the potential criminality of, a, of an individual during the 19th century. Bertillon wasn't a phrenologist, and he wasn't necessarily using phrenology, but he was using the tools of phrenology. He was using a crucial measurement from phrenology, and he was centering this as a means of identifying criminals and, and finding them, re-identifying them. And I should mention that phrenologists at the latter part of the century, because phrenologists were still very much active at the latter part of the century, basically looked at what he was doing. And they said, we've been doing this all along. Why didn't anyone listen to us? Like, we could, we, this is literally how we've been measuring heads. And meanwhile, they basically said, well, you know, the Bertillon system is all well and good. You know, measuring the size and the contour of the head, that's literally what we've been saying to do. But they basically said, well, instead of doing these Bertillon cards with all the measurements on them, why don't you just cast the head in plaster, right? Why don't you just make a phrenological cabinet? What they wanted to actually supplant Bertillonage with was a phrenological police. So what we have are these very suggestive connections between phrenology and these latter-day practices of policing. And Bertillonage, which might also seem very strange, was used, at least in the United States, until the 1920s and 1930s in some places. It was only very slowly replaced with mugshots because, again, the measurements were seen to be more trustworthy than the image. And that, again, I think is a lesson about how important the skull in particular and the bones were for naturalizing difference, including naturalizing criminality. 
Can I just ask, like, um, so as you say, well, whether it's in the police or um, in court, what did an analysis sound like? Oh, that's a very good question. So it would depend. It would depend on the case. So sometimes you see phrenology just sort of referenced. They, they would cite phrenologists. They would cite phrenological things. What I find most interesting are, are two things. First of all, you do have phrenologists called in stand or medical expert witnesses who literally use phrenology to tell us about the shape of the head. So, for example, there's this court case in the 1840s in Pennsylvania uh, a man by the name of John Haggerty was put on trial for the murder of his neighbor and his neighbor's family. So the defense attorney claimed that Haggerty, as a younger man, had been injured. He had been uh, thrown from a cart or, or I, I can't remember exactly the nature of the injury, but basically he had a depression in the side of the head from an injury he had received. And so the defense attorney explained the location of this, this injury based on phrenological org organs, basically said, you know, it passed through marvelousness and hope and ideality. And if I had a phrenological bust in front of you, I could show you exactly where that injury would have been on his skull. So it was useful for mapping the, the skull, quite literally. But in addition to this, he argued essentially that this injury caused his bad behavior, right? So it was used to explain, especially criminal insanity and other kinds of criminal acts. Uh, basically, the shape of the head could be used not only to predict potential bad behavior, but also to explain things like why this, this man was, um, why he acted out in the way that he did. So early cerebral localization, this is not unlike the case of Phineas Gage in its own way. So anyway, Haggerty's lawyer calls to the stand a phrenologist by the name of William Fonstock. And on the stand, William Fonstock basically does the same thing. He, he assesses where the location of the injury was. He explains it using phrenological language. And meanwhile, the judge then interrupts him, not to say, you're a phrenologist, get, off my, get out of my court, but to ask instead, well, what about the organ of destructiveness, which, as I said, was the organ of murder, right? And the judge basically is demonstrating this case that by the time we get to the 1840s in America, he, there was phrenological literacy. People knew what the organs were, they knew where they were located, and they knew that that organ in particular was significant, that it said something about the potential danger of this individual. Now, unfortunately for Haggerty, Fonstock basically says, no, the injury doesn't come near that organ. And Haggerty does later end up being uh, found guilty and executed. And I have to wonder if that injury had come near his organ of murder, his organ of destructiveness, would he perhaps have been found innocent? I don't know. I mean, that's a counterfactual, so we can't we can't uh, we we can't say what what might have been. But it is very fascinating to me that everyone in that courtroom understood the language, right? They, and they understood the meaning enough to even ask about organs that nobody had mentioned. And I should say that when the prosecuting attorney um, basically. You know, he didn't he didn't question the phrenologist's credentials. He didn't try to throw phrenology out of the court. Um, he he went along with it. It was seen as valid, useful scientific knowledge. Now, those kind of explicit uses of phrenology are a lot rarer, uh, you know, probably for for good reason than than uh, we might expect. But on the other hand, phrenological language finds its way into court throughout the 19th century, in particular through this phrase propensity to destroy or propensity to murder. So when the organ of destructiveness was described in phrenological texts, the language that's given to it is propensity, basically saying that certain aspects of the brain, of the mind, lead one to behave in certain ways. So an organ produces a propensity to 
do X. And propensity in particular was used for the bad behavior organs, for theft, for murder, for fighting, these sorts of things. So over time, this language of propensity gets distanced from phrenology, but the phrenological assumptions that are wrapped up in it about this determinism, this, this notion of, again, the naturalizing of qualities of character um, continues on. And so this language of propensity continues to be used in medical legal texts, especially around issues like criminal insanity uh, throughout the 19th century, and I would argue still into the present. Uh, I can I can think of examples of news articles or crime dramas I've watched in, in the recent years where they mentioned somebody had a propensity to murder, a propensity to rape, or a propensity to, um, you know, to steal. And that, again, is naturalizing this sense of criminality as this inherent immutable characteristic, which might be very distanced at this point from its chronological origins, but the assumption is still there, right? It's still wrapped up in that language. Awesome. <laughs> see, the thing is, once you start noticing it, you see it everywhere. And I haven't even told you about good and bad heads visually. Um, so the language and the images of phrenology are very much with us and they have real consequences, I would argue, right? Because once you start to say that some people are inherently in such a way or that people that look a particular way are dangerous, once these images and this language sort of make its way into culture, it's very, very hard to, to lose them. It's very, very hard to get rid of them. You know, think, for example, of, um, you know, I always tell my students to consider cartoons. In cartoons, what do bad guys look like? Right. And where do these assumptions about what bad guys look like come from? And of course, they're racialized in particular ways as well. Um, but they're, you know, they're they're also based in these phrenological assumptions about good and bad heads looking particular ways. I used to work for a, a charity that um, helps people in the UK born with cleft and people with visual difference. And the thing you see over and over and over and over and over and over, and over again is oh, there's a villain in a movie. Does the villain in a movie have burn a scar? like some kind of visual difference, facial irregularity, and it's everywhere and it's exhausting. It's it's strange, the, the connection that has been drawn historically and is repeatedly drawn in movies between beauty and good and, you know, visual difference and bad. Absolutely. And of course, certain aspects, you know, a hooked nose, for example, tends to code for um, all sorts of negative behaviors, but especially people who are, who are greedy, people who are suspicious and you can't trust, untrustworthy. And of course the hook nose in, in physiognomy, historically in physiognomy was something that's very much associated with um, people of Jewish descent. So we see how these assumptions are, are pretty powerful and pretty relevant. And when things like physiognomy and certainly phrenology take on these assumptions, what they do once again is they provide further validation for often quite racist or classist or sexist uh, or ableist assumptions about ability, about potential, about character, further nationalizing them, making them seem objective, and in a crucial way, working their way into the way that we see and interact with people in daily life. That that language, that, like that story you just told about the, the basically the development of language or propensity, which is a term that you consider scientific and you consider legalistic and you've as, as you rightly say i have seen it in movies i see i've seen it in, in shows and i and bright people use that all the time you've drawn the arc of how a scientific method led to that as a determinant factor in a in society and it 
I also know as a human being, I do this all the time in a very social kind of way. And just to use a, a banal example, when I'm driving late at night, um, I, I, I cast meaning to the shape of the headlights in my rear view mirror as to whether or not it's a good car or a bad car. It's just such our brain is so easily thinks that way. But but what you're writing about and what you're studying is 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 almost like how that very human and sometimes very ugly human um, reasoning has been turned into science, which is then in turn turned into legalistic decision making. Oh, sure. But I also think, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm sympathetic to a certain extent with our mid-century phrenologists, or at least perhaps not with our phrenologists, because I think a lot of them are terrible people. Um, I should also say, you know, it's, it's complicated because uh, mid-century American phrenologists, at least, were, were heavily involved in reform efforts. They were, uh, they were pro-penal reform. They were anti-capital punishment in general. They were pro-suffrage. They were anti-slavery. So phrenologists were really on the leading edge of a lot of reform movements. And yet a lot of their publications, nevertheless, uh, reinforced uh, sexist hierarchies and assumptions, racist and, and ethnic assumptions and hierarchies. So they... You know, it's it's hard because there's this real tension in a lot of their writing where they argued against slavery, for example, but they also fundamentally believed that there was a hierarchy of racial difference, especially about intelligence. Um, there were female phrenologists, including Lydia Folger Fowler, who was the second woman in America to receive a medical degree. And she she published quite widely on both medicine and on phrenology. So we had very eminent women, female phrenologists who are who are also medical doctors. Um, and yet the documents that they produced were very much along the lines of women are best in the home and a woman's chief responsibility is to her children. So that tension certainly exists. But I do find, uh, you know, what I'm always curious about when people often ask me is, well, then why did normal people, why, why did normal people get so interested in phrenology? Because that's the key, right? If this had only been relevant to, to elite scientists, then by the time they had discarded phrenology in about the late 1830s, early 1840s, the story would have ended, but it didn't end, right? The science, uh, many of the elite scientists and early adopters moved on, but the public actually only got more excited about phrenology. So what led average people into the phrenologist's office, what led them to pay often quite a lot of money for a phrenological reading. And I think it comes to a matrix of, of amusement. Sure, you know, it was a fun pastime, but also anxiety, intense anxiety in the middle of the 19th century. You have uh, in the United States and in, in various parts of Europe, a society that is rapidly industrializing, that is urbanizing. You have a lot of movement of people, immigration and emigration. You have a lot of political upheaval right, from revolutions, re regime changes, wars, and, and so forth. So you have this period where um, one is increasingly, as, as an individual in, in mid-century culture, especially in the United States, but certainly in Britain and France, right, you have a circumstance where one is constantly surrounded by strangers, and one has a lot of anxiety about those strangers. And in fact, I think a lot of the anxiety, and part of the reason why um, there isn't as much um, I should say, racial profiling in phrenological notions of criminality in the early part of the 19th century is because the strangers that most phrenological clients were most concerned about 
we're other white people, we're other Europe, people of European descent. Because if you're in a city and you're walking around, right, and you know, you can see the people of you can see the people who don't look like you and you can stay away from them. But what about these other people of European descent? How do you know whether to trust them or not? And that's why some of the most interesting things going on. Uh, and most of the criminals that phrenologists wrote about in the 19th century tended to be people of European descent because they were obsessed with this, this, this notion. It's very much the sense of white people writing for other white people about how do we know who the good white people are? And of course, white being in quotation marks, because, you know, somebody who has a virus descent wasn't white in the same way, right? That's whiteness of a different color. Um, what is very interesting about racial profiling, though, is at least in the United States before emancipation, there was generally seen in, in phrenological and other non-phrenological writing, even among the very racist writing done by pro-slavery advocates, this assumption that people of African descent could not commit crime. They were, they were incapable. They weren't smart enough. They were too servile. Um, they were um, too passive. So they weren't dangerous. You didn't have to worry about them, right? So racist assumptions about inferiority actually shaped notions of basically people of African descent just weren't that dangerous. Meanwhile, indigenous Americans were seen as profoundly dangerous, which is why they couldn't be enslaved, but why they did need to be removed from their lands and they couldn't mingle with, with uh, white settlers, right? Now, after the Civil War, after emancipation, suddenly all of these people writing on race, less the phrenologists, but other racial theorists and scientists, suddenly start to look at people of African descent and see signs of criminality that they had never worried about before. Because suddenly you don't have this abject body. You do not have uh, enslaved people. You have free black Americans in society who become re-racialized in this way that is uh, that starts to fix criminal actions on the bodies and on the faces, I would argue, on the, the, the interpretation of signs of the body that essentially make racial profiling in the decades after the Civil War. So race and crime is a is very complicated as it relates in these documents. Um, and I should say by that point, uh, post-Civil War, the phrenologists were not participating in this re-racializing process per se. They were much more concerned with other things at that point. But um, You'll see, you'll see sort of very racist documents from before and after the Civil War. And on the one hand, they basically say before the Civil War, oh, you don't have to worry about them. And after the Civil War, suddenly the, the black body is reimagined as this dangerous criminal. Um, it's very fascinating. It's very depressing, of course, but it is also very fascinating. It's just so interesting that like, when it comes to a lot of the tech that we look at now, and we'll keep coming back to facial recognition, partly because it maps so well, yeah. because what a biometric kind of view of a face is, is those little measurements between the eyes and between different parts of your face. But what's so fascinating about it, and um, this is slightly incoherent, for which I apologize, but um, when, facial, when facial recognition looks at like a black person's face, it's not very good at making those measurements. It's not because of the way that it's been trained, because of all sorts of things. And that kind of inadequacy of, and that mm -hmm. that poor understanding of what like a black face looks like leads to like worse outcomes for those people because they're recognized as criminal more frequently by the machine. And in one sense, that's a fundamental problem with the machine. It's a bad machine. It doesn't do what it's supposed to do. In another sense, like it's drawing these connections 
this person looks like this person, the main thing tying them together is they're both black. You, and you were saying about um, people liking the measurements more than they like the images. It's the same thing sometimes with facial recognition. It's like if you looked at two images, you might say those two people don't look alike. And then, but if you look, take the biometric measurement even though it's bad and then you say oh well maybe they are because the computer says so and it's just well I mean part of it has to do with you know we could talk about um, Jacques Camus and PhotoFit but you know part of the thing about that is the original system was built on white faces you know it, when you start from an assumption that of, of whiteness, right? And you use that to calibrate your machine. And we're seeing this in uh, the problem with pulse oximeters right now. We're seeing this in a lot of different aspects of um, uh, medical technologies. Uh, then that that means that you're, the assumptions that you build into the machine produce the results, right? So much like science is not neutral or objective, machines aren't either. AI isn't either. They are always manifestations of the programmer's assumptions, which is something that you try telling somebody who works at, you know, at an AI company and they do not like it when you say these sorts of things. But I also, I think that imagery is really important. So this is an image from my book. Do you see this? Yeah. So here's uh, and I'm sorry, it's it's reversed, but this is an image of large and small destructiveness, right? Wide heads, bad, narrow heads, good, right? And you probably can't tell, or you might be able to tell, but that wide head there is also a, a particular person, a real person from history, an indigenous man by the name of Blackhawk. So even our assumptions about wide heads, right, are actually based on uh, and in that particular instance, Black Hawk wasn't seen as a criminal in the same way that many people of African descent were not seen as criminals, again, because of these assumptions about capability and capacity. But at the same time, if you're coding badness onto wide heads and particular um, ethnic groups do have wider heads, whereas you're building your notion of good heads on, on white uh, narrow sort of heads and faces, then you're going to run into a problem. And that wide head versus narrow head image that I just showed you, you see this all the time in AI these days. You see this all the time in um, uh, sort of, and not just not just with regard to criminal um, examinations of criminals, but also in, uh, I, I saw a recent, uh, I wrote a short piece about this recently about good and bad heads in the present. And that wide head, bad, narrow head, good idea is still manifesting in algorithms to determine trustworthiness uh, in terms of uh, facial, hip facial height to width ratio studies of aggression and competitiveness, as well as, you know, whether you should hire somebody. So these kinds of assumptions about what kinds of heads are good and what kind are bad are still either being rediscovered within, and you can't see this on the podcast, but I used air quotes, rediscovered in air quotes. Uh, I use air quotes a lot when I talk, I'm sorry. Um, they're either being rediscovered in the present as, as reality, or they're being replicated by, because of our social and cultural assumptions are making the way into the way that these AI studies and facial recognition programs are being written and developed. 
it, it's a chicken or egg kind of thing here, right? But I do think that whether it's phrenology or not, this is signaling some, some very deep-seated assumptions about goodness and badness that are equally based, if not on the 19th century science, then probably on some pretty deeply held racist assumptions about what good people look like. And of course, that also presupposes who's looking, uh, who's looking at people and who's doing the judging. It sort of does assume, right, that that the person looking and judging is probably white. I remember after 9-11, uh, we were fighting against the, um, the digitization of passports and the inclusion of facial recognition. And uh, that was when um, they started requiring uh, that you could no longer smile in your photographs for your passports because the computer said you couldn't because they couldn't recognize it. And it's interesting, something like a smile that... Um, as a minority, as a visible minority, when I go into a place where I know there's discomfort about my appearance, I use my smile to try to disarm, to to not be that that visible threat anymore. And uh, taking that out of my passport photo, and now I look like a criminal in my passport photo. And the and the computer will probably say I look like a criminal as a result too. I actually wanted to bring up the PhotoFit thing. So you sent me an article about PhotoFit that was fascinating. And so I wanted to talk about it because it was just, it was, it was very, very interesting. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, this is, this is one of my, my little pet projects that I, I discovered a few years ago in an archive, a board game, a board game from, from the 1930s in Britain called Fizzogs. Uh, and it's a physiognomical board game. And I just thought this was the neatest thing. But of course, I'm writing a book on 19th century America. What do I have to do with this 1930s board game? Like, I don't have time to work on this. But I couldn't stop thinking about it because it's such a weird thing, right? Who would make a physiognomical board game? And then who would play it, right? And in, in fact, I actually had the chance, and I write about this in the article, um, to play the board game. Then it is it is hard to play as it happens, because it requires you to make certain kinds of physiognomical judgments that uh, are not necessarily as familiar to us in the present, right? A lot of the values uh, of appearance have changed, you know, beauty norms, cultural norms, and expectations have changed, as well as the language, the way they describe different facial features. It might just be British English instead of American English, but I also think that there is something to the the time dilation here of this was produced about a century ago. But the question who created this is is where it gets really interesting. So as I I examined this weird board game, I discovered it was produced by a man by the name of Jacques Henry, who was a French-Canadian enthusiast of character. Um, So he wrote a few books. One of them was called Character from the Face. One of them was called The Face of Man. And basically, these were physiognomical books published in uh, the 1930s was the first one, and the 1950s was the second one. So at the same time that he was writing his first book, he also produced this board game, basically as a tie-in, which is sort of brilliant. I mean, I should have come up with a board game to go along with my book. That That would be wonderful. But the idea of the board game was essentially to reinforce the lessons of the book about how to judge faces, how to judge, again, strangers, how to judge others around you. So even though this is, uh, you know, we're in the early part of the 20th century, we still have this interest in physiognomy, at least enough so that he kept publishing up through the 1950s. Now, around this time, and I'm going to say more about the board game in a second, but around this time, by the time we get to the, I'm trying to find the exact date here because I want to be accurate (laughs) in my discussion 
discussion of this weird board game. Um, by the time we get to the 1960s, Jacques Penry starts to work with the British Home Office, the police research and development branch. So he was actually basically asked for, and then part of this is because he'd become a talking head. He'd become sort of this pop scientific figure, started appearing on British television through the 50s and 60s. So he he appeared on the BBC at least twice that I can tell talking about his method of creating composite faces, which is actually exactly what you do in the game. You use different facial features, uh, eyes, noses, and mouths, and you put them in a frame of a face to build a face that then has to correspond to a particular character type. So there's this, this sort of cut and paste sort of effect as you fill in the eyes, you fill in the nose, you fill in the mouth, all to try to get to an, a, a specific character set that you've been told to, to create. So in the 50s and 60s, Penry is on British television. He's talking about this method for basically constructing faces and the police get interested. So now we're back to the police. So in 68, he gets contracted with the British Home Office, the police research and development branch, and they want him to you to give give them access to his system, his system for building composite faces. So he basically says, yes, but you have to give me access to all of your police photographic files. So he gets this massive archive of mugshots to work with. And from this, he he basically rebuilt his entire system with noses, eyes, hairlines, ears, other features, basically, so that he could create new faces within this police system. So this was the origin of the photo fit system, which was a, um, a, a, facial a facial identification system. It was produced around the same time as the American Identikit system, but um, they, they were pretty comparable. What's interesting to me, of course, though, is that first of all, Henry's work is entirely based on physiognomy, right? And that second, the board game that he produced was basically an early version of PhotoFit because it's the same sort of process of slotting in different facial features to create a particular face. Now, the police were allegedly not trying to create character portraits per se, but nevertheless, uh, there's still this sort of bricolage effect with the different pieces in, in photo fit images from the 60s and 70s. You can sort of see the cutouts, like you can see where these eyes are from one thing and this nose is from something else. And then over time, uh, this the photo fit system actually was uh, an object of research and study in the 70s and 80s. Uh, there was actually a lot of critique of it. And yet at the same time, it just kept growing. So the scale becomes really, really big um, between its introduction in 1970 and 1973. So in just three years, the photo fit database went from an original 5.4 billion possible faces to 12.9 billion faces. And all those faces were white men, just to be clear. Over time, they did add non-white men and they did add female faces. But this was, again, based in assumptions of whiteness. That's where the most variety was. Um, and again, it was also based in assumptions about physiognomy, which I find to be personally very fascinating. In the same way that we're still replicating phrenological language and imagery, when we use facial identification, we're still using physiognomy. And, and I, I, just want to, I just want to add just really quickly, he never denied this. Right. He actually said in interviews, Henry actually said in interviews that basically, yes, the system I use in PhotoFit is the same as the board game. Right. Which was a profoundly physiognomic program. So maybe the physiognomy, again, was stripped out of it. But the connections are still there and still suggestive. What does it mean when you have a physiognomist 
develop your identification system. That is still more or less in use today, or versions of it are still in use today. It's also been interesting. Really, we've done increasingly like work on public procurement, and it's also really interesting to hire a private contractor and give them loads of loads of like fairly confidential data um, that they otherwise wouldn't have had access to to allow them to develop a system, which is a model that we see again and again and again, and is in and of itself quite problematic. And again, you know, when he appeared on the BBC when he was talking about this, like he wasn't he was. He wasn't already a part of the police. They basically saw a physiognomist talking about physiognomy and his his facial system on on the television. And they decided, aha, that's the guy we want to develop a facial recognition system. It's also some of the descriptions, like the character options, like you you talked about one where the woman's supposed to be magnetic. And it's such a familiar descriptor because it's familiar to me from like Agatha Christie, where they where she describes like magnetic women who are you know, and, and you see the picture and I'm like, that's not how I imagine them, but that's interesting. Yes. I mean, there's really interesting things. Uh, you know, I mentioned in the article that the only, you, to get back to smiling, right, the only faces you can construct within the system with smiles are women, because of course, women are expected to smile in a way that men are not. Um, the curved hook nose, of course, is associated with um, avarice uh, and, and uh, a lack of trustworthiness again, coded for, even though this is, these were all white faces, there's still this kind of coding for um, Jewishness. I, w- I would suggest probably that there's some coding for, for Irish facial features as well in the system. Uh, so there's a, there's a lot to unpack as with all things. The problem, of course, is that we don't always take time to unpack them. When you open up the newspaper, you watch television, they, they show a composite image of a potential criminal, we don't think about these origins and connections. And I would argue that we really should, because we should think about what the, you know, what the path that led us here, what that means for the use of that kind of image in the same way that we should think about what the origins of language like propensity or our assumptions about wide heads being bad uh, tells us about why we continue to use these languages, these images, these tools and what they say about the continued place of these sciences in society. And that's actually why I hate the word pseudoscience and why I never refer to phrenology or physi- physiognomy as pseudoscientific, because in effect, first of all, they both were considered to be sciences in various points in their history. They were practiced by real scientists with real scientific training. Phrenology was developed by two physicians and anatomists, for example, but more than that, Uh, They were taken seriously as sciences in their time, which is important. But by calling them pseudosciences, basically we say we can dismiss them. We say, oh, they're not important. They weren't serious. They were silly. These people in the past didn't know what they were doing. Well, if we say that, then it gives us sort of license to ignore the origins of these various things that are still with us. It allows us to sort of ignore the way that we have naturalized racial and sexual difference, um, or the way that we have naturalized criminality, for example. And that, I think, is ultimately fairly dangerous. So when you call something a pseudoscience, when you dismiss it, what does that say about your desire not to criticize or think critically about the legacies of these practices in the present day? And to use a a, a poor term, the propensity of us to feel... It's almost like we we want to forget that we constantly reach to science to justify our decision making around life or death decisions for people. And we'll grab whatever sounds like the most interesting science at the time and let it dictate 
at the same time, we're not really letting it dictate because we have our own subjective thoughts that are that we're we're, we're bringing in under the the, the 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 guise of science, and that's what AI is today. This is just you you are studying a fascinating area. I love it. It just shouldn't be relevant today. <laughs> it shouldn't. I I keep I I keep asking every time somebody does something, I, I get, you know, a million Twitter notifications anytime phrenology comes up in the news. And every single time I'm like, can we stop, please? I'm tired. I would like for there to be less phrenology. I never asked for relevance. I am naturally not the kind of person who seeks relevance. So it would be great if we could knock it off, please. That would be wonderful. Um, but I do think that this this also just says something about how we want to see the history of science. The history of science, one of the biggest um, assumptions we have to push back against uh, among the public and among my students, for example, is everybody likes to see science as a progress narrative, right? As a story of us constantly getting better and amazing and leading up to where we are today. And that's problematic for all sorts of reasons. But ultimately, I actually would argue that the history of science is really much more a history of failure. Every science, no matter how legitimate it is in the present, is littered with failed theories, failed practices, um, bad ideas in its past. So sciences like phrenology are actually essentially the, the history of science writ large. And in fact, even the most failed sciences, something like phrenology, which we can all agree, you know, you can't take classes in phrenology and you can't get your degree in phrenology. You cannot be a practicing phrenologist in the present day. And that's that's great. I think that's wonderful. But phrenology, even as a classic failed science, is still absolutely with us and affecting our daily lives. So if that's the case for science like phrenology, then what aspects of other areas of scientific study, some of them even, even more disturbing and more problematic, what aspects of those are still with us? Um, another good example I love to use all the time is eugenics, which profoundly shapes the society that we live in, the language that we use, how we talk about people and about reproduction. And eugenics is something that we often dismiss and we say, oh, that was the Nazis, that wasn't us. Well, it was us. And in fact, the Nazis learned a lot from Americans in particular about how to put their eugenic practices into motion. And eugenic societies still existed well into the 1950s and 1960s. Not to mention that any time, as I always tell my students, anytime you hear somebody comment on whether someone should or shouldn't be having children or more children, or how are they going to afford that kid? Or should somebody like that really be having kids? What they're doing is they're they're replicating and participating in eugenic thinking. So these are just two examples for knowledge and eugenics. But it does make you wonder, what about all those not failed sciences, those sciences we don't dismiss as pseudoscience, those sciences that are still being taught in universities and still offering degrees. And if you think that something like physics is neutral, I can tell you it certainly is not. It has its own history and its own politics. But the more we want to see a scientific field as neutral or objective, I think the more critical and thoughtful we should be about how we use and implement its practices. And also we should always ask ourselves, you know, qui bono, who benefits from the articulation of the science, but also the flip side, which is who suffers. I mean, obviously I could talk for forever because I'm, I'm a chatty person, but. Because yeah, you do such fascinating work. This is amazing. And depressing. Don't forget depressing. But thank you so much for having me. This, this is really fun. So if ever you want to talk about more depressing stuff in the future, you know, get, get in touch. Absolutely. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Have a good day. That was awesome.
Thanks for listening. You can find out more about PI and our work at privacyinternational.org. And we'll include some links to relevant articles and information in the description wherever you're listening. Like and subscribe to the podcast on whichever platform you use. It's also available on our website. The music is courtesy of Sepia. 